0: The pandemic is like an x-ray machine that reveals inequality, the United Nations said. It shows the cracks in society that turn an inconvenience for some into a life-altering setback for others. Few know those fault lines better than Gail Smith. She's currently the president and CEO of The One Campaign, an organization founded by U2 lead singer Bono that aims to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030. Earlier in her career, Smith served in the Obama administration as the head of USAID, which distributes billions in foreign aid each year. In this episode of Influencers, Gail joins me to talk about how the coronavirus has worsened inequality and what we can do about it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Gail Smith, who is the CEO of the One Campaign, an organization seeking to end extreme poverty and preventable disease worldwide. She is also the former U.S. Agency for International Development head under the Obama administration. Gail, great to see you.
1: Great to see you.
0: So I know people have heard of One, but sometimes I think they've heard of one because of Bono and because yeah. of the public campaigns that you do with products. So could you tell everyone exactly what one does, please?
1: So, so we're called the One Campaign, because basically what we do is we run campaigns, some of them global, some of them in individual countries, to try to seek one of three things. One is more resources for ending extreme poverty and preventable disease. The second is policies. There are a lot of policies that make a huge difference uh, on the ground. And the third is to mobilize and engage citizens because we believe, and we've seen it work with the One Campaign, and I've seen it from both sides, now as the president and CEO, but I served in two administrations where I was on the other side of it, that when citizens are organized, have a smart ask, put some bold advocacy behind it, they can affect change. So we run big change campaigns. Think of a political campaign without a politician.
0: Right. So, so how are you connected to other NGOs, Gail? And where do you sort of fit in, say with the Gates Foundation? Or yeah. just, you know, there's myriad other organizations, right? Myriad
1: other organizations. And we work with a huge number of them. I think one important difference is that many of the large NGOs around the world run actual programs. Right. So they have supporters in governments, but they also have supporters from among the public and they support schools and clinics and other programs. We don't do that. We don't ask our supporters for money. We just ask them for our voice. So we do the advocacy and policy side. How do we mobilize people to affect real and meaningful change, not just in the capitals of donor countries who control a lot of the levers, but also within Africa, where we've been building this model out over the last couple of years?
0: Yeah, what does that really mean, asking people to lend their voice instead of money?
1: Yeah, so so uh, I'll give you a, a great example. Um, it was probably over a year ago in the United States where there was a move by the White House on something called rescissions, which was to basically pull a lot of money out of the budget, including a huge amount of our development assistance. On the grounds that it hadn't been spent. we're going to pull it back. Um, our team was able to mobilize thousands of people across the country within 24 hours to get to their members of Congress to say, we actually care about this. You You may think that Americans don't care about people overseas or foreign aid. Actually, we do. You need to stop this. And that did two things. I think to those members who had not been paying attention, it was like, oh, so my constituents actually care, so maybe I should speak up and act on this. To others, it sent the message that if you're willing to stick your neck out and stop this, you've got constituents who will support you and say, good on you, you've done a good thing. Um, global level, it's major petitions and campaigns to let leaders know that there are hundreds of thousands and in some cases millions of people who support a bolder move or who will get behind what you're doing or who expect more of you.
0: Right, and so then I can see how the products like T-shirts or Apple products would fit into that because then you're showing people you care by buying those things and having that logo.
1: Well, that's a that's part of the one campaign is uh, a project called Red. Right. What red does is exactly what you described. So it has worked with Apple over the years. There's a Red iPhone. You may have seen it. It's actually a gorgeous Red iPhone. Right look, and it's got the red logo on it. And what that is is that the proceeds from the sale of those products go to the fight against HIV and AIDS. Right. That's a slightly different model than the advocacy model. We raise literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for the global fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. And it's a little bit of a twofer. You can show that you actually care about something, but your money is actually going to fund the programs that Help us move forward as we continue to fight the AIDS epidemic.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: Um, let me ask you
0: about uh, current events and what's going on um, with COVID nineteen, and how how is that impacting the work that you do, Gail?
1: Dramatically. I mean, you know, you said at the top, our mission is ending extreme poverty and preventable diseases of the impacts of this pandemic, which, right, we're seeing everywhere in the world, it's having a huge economic impact. On the world's poorest countries, that's even greater and felt more because there's less to fall back on. So we're looking potentially at the first increase worldwide in poverty since 1998. In other words, since 1998, we've made steady progress in reducing extreme poverty every year. That's about to go in the reverse. The economic consequences of this are massive. Imagine this. In Africa, in tourism, for example, a hugely important sector, $55 billion has been lost in the last three months alone. So everything that we have fought for, that that people in these countries have fought for and worked hard to achieve, all that progress is at stake. On the preventable disease side, well, turns out It's actually a preventable disease. And we are looking there. We've launched a big campaign called One World to focus on mobilizing a global response to this pandemic. There are ways to end it, which we need to do urgently given its impacts. But there's also the risk of it eroding other gains in the global health field. Um, You know, there's a diversion. There's a big, huge emergency We can't afford to see a a decline in vaccines. We can't afford to see resources shift away from steady progress against AIDS to go to this. So how do we both fight the virus on the preventable disease side, but also protect the gains of the last 25 years?
0: Wow. I mean, when you're confronting someone like this as the head of an organization or a campaign like this, I should say, how do you begin to focus and even sort of um, deploy your assets and your resources?
1: So, our we work in a number of ways. Um, one of them is what we call the sort of outside game. How do you capture the public's attention? Mm-hmm. And One's got a long history of marrying up with pop culture to capture people's imagination. And some of that has to do with Bono having been the founder uh, but I'll give you a couple of examples of things we've done in this campaign. One is something called pass the mic. And you may have noticed from the early days of this pandemic, there are a lot of celebrities and artists that wanted to do things, but there was an uneasiness. I mean, both are like, what's our role? How do you do this? This is a sensitive time. This is affecting everyone. And what we came up with was a campaign where over 40 celebrities and artists handed over their social media to 40 experts. And these experts were frontline healthcare workers, epidemiologists, economists, um, big names on both sides. And we were able to reach millions of people with facts about this pandemic and how to fight it. Because as you know, these artists and and talent have huge followings. Another example, that I'm really proud of and is actually really good music is our African team worked with African musicians from all over the continent to record an anthem called stand together, which is, you can find it on Spotify and YouTube and all these places, the theme of which none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And that eventually we'll come to the other side of this pandemic, but for now we need to stand together. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, For people who are already inclined to be interested, you can go to them with analyses, factoids, policy papers, and so on. But for people who aren't necessarily aware, you want to be accessible. And using culture is a great way, we've found, to make it accessible to people. And in the main, people want to do something. It's not that hard to put your name on a petition. Tweet at your member of Congress. It's not that hard. And so people people tend to act.
0: You were directly involved in the US response uh, to Ebola in 2014. Yeah. So what is your assessment of how the United States has handled the coronavirus?
1: You know, I, I have to say, sadly, I think there's a very sharp contrast. Um, the response to the Ebola epidemic was extremely difficult. But I think one of the ways we were very effective where I think we've got a contrast to right now first was a tremendous reliance on facts, data, science, and expertise. And the American people are blessed by having huge talent within and among our U S government agencies. So we had a, a foundation to work with you know, fighting a virus. It's a, it's a science. There's data, you can track it, you know, where it moves. So it's all, it's like an engineering logistical exercise at warp speed. So I think that was, that was one. Uh, and we're seeing less of that, quite frankly, now. Um, I don't think the Ebola response to the Ebola epidemic was not politicized. There was a little bit of political noise at certain points. But when, for example, we went to Congress to get supplemental funding for the global response, strong bipartisan support. And I think, unfortunately, the response has become quite politicized today. I think the biggest difference, though, and it's, it's the one that, in many ways, I find the most troubling, is that we are not seeing a global response, and we are not seeing American leadership in marshalling that global response. And that global response is one that, obviously, we want to impact the lives of the world's most disenfranchised, but also matters to us. So if you think, for example, of the food fights that were had over PPE and medical supplies. You know, we should be using our leadership to pull the world together and mobilize and say, we all need these things. Let's organize ourselves and be more effective and more efficient. Uh, The impact of this, I mean, here's a shocking thing. There are as many as 35 countries that could end up defaulting on their debts because the economic impact of this is so great. Now, the impact of any one of those on the global economy would not be major. If we start seeing significant numbers of countries default, huge impact on human suffering, but huge impact on the global economy. American leadership should be out there getting ahead of that. Lastly, think about vaccines. And there's a lot of talk about vaccines. We need a plan globally so that we've got vaccine equity, which isn't simply fairness but it is also the kind of coverage that the epidemiology tells us that we need so that we can shorten the lifespan of this pandemic. That requires leadership and engaging the rest of the world in a way that I don't think we're seeing now, where in contrast, during Ebola, President Obama convened a summit with the Secretary General of the UN. It was top of agenda in the UN Security Council, the G7, the G20. He sat in the Oval Office, I was with him many times, called leaders all over the world to say, what are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? We all gotta work together and get this done. So I think we're much more fragmented, not nearly science-oriented enough and we're not planning ahead. Other than that, it's great.
0: And, And just to follow up on this global leadership point, would it entail, for instance, the president of the United States, President Trump, of course, working with the WHO and there's this rift now between right. the administration, yeah. and the
1: administration. And that's really a tragic, tragic rift. And I think, you know, leave aside how China has handled this from the beginning. And there are likely issues there to explore, and they should be explored, because this isn't the first time we're going to face a global health threat. That should be sorted out. WHO is an institution that the world relies on. It's, it's a little bit, you know, it's the heartbeat of a global response like this. It is not a perfect organization. I've yet to actually meet a perfect organization. Um, but it's a UN agency, which means it's also as good as its members. And so it's not as though this is an independent organization that we can just hold a referendum on and decide whether we like it or not. We are members who we work. We are part of it, and it is our job, obligation, and I would argue opportunity to make it better and make it more effective. I think the tragedy has been to withdraw from the WHO and have an argument at the height of a pandemic. It's a bit like saying you don't like the fire chief, so you're going to burn down the firehouse while your house is on fire. I mean... Okay, maybe you get the fire chief, but your house is still going to burn to the ground. So it's really that I think that's really an unfortunate development. It's a really important organization, and we have, as I say, I believe the obligation and the opportunity to make it an even better organization. But it needs our support rather than than our attacks.
0: You mentioned social media, uh, yeah, and and I want to ask you about social media when it comes to the pandemic because. There's a lot of misinformation out there um, when it comes to Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. And I'm curious what your take on that is. And are there solutions there? Is it is a necessary evil? Um, what is your thinking? Yeah.
1: Look, I, you know, we've always, I think, faced the, the people who put falsehoods out of the mix or sell products that aren't what they claim to be and so on. I think when it's on the internet, when you look at uh, scale and speed, we're in a bit of a deluge right now. And I I think it's really, really dangerous. Um, But I think as dangerous as that, and this is again where leadership and how you manage a pandemic comes into play. There is even now a debate about where science, whether science is a legitimate thing or not, right? So it's not just, let's debate the facts on whether children transmit the virus. Let's debate whether science really has to anything to do with this. And I think there's been a discounting of science when again, my experience in the Ebola epidemic, I worked for a long time on HIV and AIDS, science is our friend and and you know you look at solving a political crisis you know, look at Lebanon today for example. it would be great to have science and facts and data that could help guide through that. That's persuasion that's a political will that's human choice. In a pandemic facts are our ammunition. And so I think the, the first thing that really needs to happen and where we've got a deficit is we need to re-legitimize Science. It's kind of shocking to think that that's necessary. Um, Because once you do that, then when falsehoods are put out there, debunking something with the science, which is what we used to do, becomes a much easier proposition. Um, So I, I can't believe it's a necessary evil because I think it is wildly destructive. I think tragically the lifespan of this global pandemic is being extended by this kind of back and forth nonsense and disinformation. Um, I'm not sure what the solution is, to be perfectly frank. Um, Right now, the solution kind of seems to be everybody passing the hot potato around, and nobody stepping up and saying, all right, we're all going to come together and and solve this, because again, I think the last thing anybody wants to do is, let's say, let's make sure this pandemic lasts a year or two longer than it needs to. Not a not a good plan.
0: Right. Um, switching back a little bit to the, the global impact and also the yeah. national impact, there's talk of, you know, tens of millions of Americans facing food insecurity here. And then, so I want to ask you about that, number one. And number two, I want to ask you about... Wealth inequality, yeah, dynamic, and, and whether it's exacerbating that Gail.
1: Well, I think that it is, and and one of the uh, it's it's terrible yet interesting things is that the kinds of impacts we're seeing here are certainly being felt elsewhere in the world, but also just on a much greater scale. So that here, the sort of aftershocks or the secondary impacts of the virus. And also the lockdowns is right. We've got joblessness. uh, We've got people who can't move. We've got disruptions in markets and transportation, therefore increases in hunger. People have less money. They're less able to get the, the food that they need. We're seeing that on a much greater scale in the poorest countries in the world where we're looking at a doubling of the levels of world hunger, like huge. So it's... It's the same issue, it's just, it's on a very, very different scale. And I think that we are likely to see um, an exacerbation of economic inequality through this. Because, you know, the way this works is that if you are fortunate enough to have a home and a job and some savings, when there's an external shock like a pandemic, you've got something to fall back on and you may not want to start spending your savings, but you're not going to end up on the street. You're not going to end up hungry when you are living on the edge where you don't have savings in, in a really poor country, you may already be hungry and an external shock like this hits you're thrown even further into hardship. And so when I reference, for example, an increase in extreme poverty for the first time in 22 years, that's, in essence, means a wider gap across the wealth spectrum. So I think tragically, now the, the other side of that coin is by exposing these inequalities, one hopes that people are seeing what these inequalities are in a way that, that maybe too many have ignored for too long. And we can seize the opportunity to say, wait a minute, this isn't working. If people are that vulnerable, whether it's here in the United States or in Southern Africa, that's not tenable.
0: Yeah, let me ask you about that the other side, then. I mean, you you deal yeah. mostly with the people on this side of the coin, but but you also deal with celebrities and wealthy people and yeah. billionaires. What Gail, what do we do with the billionaires? <laughs> uh, they're getting richer and richer at the expense of all the rest of us. Uh, some of them pitch in and help, um, some of them don't. Not everyone's Bill Gates. Uh, yeah. What do we do?
1: Well, I think part of it is to to get more Bill Gates, and and because I think one of the things that Bill has done is obviously decided at a certain point, I've I've got enough money, which arguably uh, he certainly does, and so I'm going to use my name, my influence, my contacts, my networks, and my money to build this foundation, which. I think the Gates Foundation has been a game changer in global public health. And there are others that have done this. But I think, you know, I think the big debate here is because there's a lot of sentiment out there now that, well, philanthropy isn't enough. I think that's a fair argument, but I also think we shouldn't discount it. It's hugely impactful that Bill Gates is doing some of what he is doing. If you look at Bloomberg, other philanthropies, Jeff Skoll, there are a number of them out there that are doing quite extraordinary things and and putting the resources they've earned. I think the question becomes, do we have a system that does two things, that that puts upon us uh, equal opportunities and equal obligations, right? And frankly, right now, we have a system, and I think this is true worldwide, where because of race, class, gender, ethnicity, um, and systems that haven't been tweaked, we don't have equal opportunity. We don't. And we also don't have equal obligations because frankly, if you've got a lot of money, you can find all sorts of ways to meet your obligations. Now, some people do that, I think, in a very principled way and very wisely. There's some, you know, there's all the stories about no tax ever paid here or there and those kinds of issues. And I think we've got to think in terms of, again, what's equal opportunity, but also what is equal obligation. And it's, it's an important discussion. I think there's a little bit of a danger that we craft it as good guys and bad guys are all or nothing. It's, it's not, but it's one of the ways I think we got to level the playing field. Because fair is fair, and a lot of what we have right now around the world isn't fair. Right. Let me ask you yeah. about
0: about you, Gail. You were a journalist, God love you, for many years. Yeah. Um, you were a freelancer. I think you worked for the AP, the Globe, um, yeah. writer, BBC in Africa. So, so where did you grow up? How did you get into that? And how did you shift into the public policy world?
1: Yeah, really. So I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and I was very fortunate. I grew up in a healthy, really supportive, safe family. So, you know, I was one of those people that went off into the world with a level of confidence that comes from that kind of upbringing. And, uh, I traveled to Africa after college, took a detour on my path and basically broke up with a crummy boyfriend and kept going. And you know, what I what I discovered and the thing that led to my being a journalist, and it was a, a bit by chance, I mean, I, I took the risk and contacted some outlets, was that here I was, I was well-educated, reasonably worldly, and there were all sorts of things going on that I had no idea about. And I felt like these are stories that need to be told because people need to know that these things are happening. A, because in some cases they were affecting the lives of real people, but also... The world isn't just Columbus, Ohio or the United States, right? It's a whole rich planet out there. And that, I, again, I was lucky I was, a, I was a freelancer. I was a stringer. I cannot claim to have made massive amounts of money. I can claim to have learned a lot and had the luxury that I think journalism provides is that you get to go seek stories and tell them fantastic. Anyway, I lived in Africa for quite some time, and the way I got into public service was I was contacted by the Clinton administration shortly after he was elected, asking whether I would be interested in serving in the administration. And to be honest, this was in the olden days. This was a fax. Uh, I, I thought somebody was messing with me. I was like, yeah, right, uh-huh, sure. And then another fax came. And, um, I spoke to them, I didn't take the first thing that was offered, which is, I didn't live in Washington at the time where you know, you're supposed to jump. Anyway, I ended up going into that administration and I am so glad that I did because I think public service is an extraordinary thing to, to see how your government works, uh, to try to make it work more effectively to realize that our government is as good as the people in it and it, you know, our government is made up of citizens. Um, to see, and then again, in eight years in the Obama administration, the extraordinary caliber and dedication of our career, government civil servants and foreign service officers. It's it's a great thing. I think more people should seek to do it. It's really, it was wonderful.
0: And we both uh, knew Michael Elliott your predecessor yes. at one who tragically died, a great guy. And yeah, so tell us about how you got connected. Did, did Bono just cold call you? And, and no,
1: say- I had actually known him for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had some common roots in the Ethiopian famine in the 80s. And even before the one campaign was created, back in the days when he and others were working on debt relief was... We connected then, And then when I was in government, both administrations, I was often the object of the one campaign, right? They would be saying, we want to see this. We want to see this. So I got to know them well. Uh, and he, in fact, called me before we left office in the Obama administration, said, I have a crazy idea. Uh, Michael had tragically died. And he said, I have a, would you think about doing this? And I thought about it. Um, from where I had sat in government, it was the most effective advocacy organization I'd worked with. And I wanted to be able to keep working on the issues I was working on then. So that's how it happened, that's how it worked out. It's kind of crazy, but it's fun and it's good and I can keep fighting the good fight.
0: So how much, I know you get asked this all the time, but how much is Bono involved and, and Bobby Shriver? Are they, they both active still?
1: They're, um, they're both on the board both tons of enthusiasm for red and keeping that going and always new ideas on that and both yes quite involved in one i mean bono is not involved in the day to day but he follows the issues and one of the and and is deployed into action when either of his own initiative or when needed he can have an impact and he's got a huge impact because one of the things about him is yes he's famous he's a rock star uh, but he knows his stuff. It's the thing that impressed me when I first met him. He's—it's—he's he's got a tremendous strength of feeling about these issues, but he's well schooled in the policy, the other dimensions. So he works the issues really hard.
0: Right. Um, let me ask you about your future, maybe. And do you have any desire to go back into government? What happened? What would happen if Joe Biden became president and called you up?
1: I'd say congratulations. Um, I had the, the pleasure and honor of working with him uh, when he was vice president. Um, you know, I interestingly, and I've had an extraordinary career up to now, I've not been one who sort of scoped it out and said, I'll do this for five years and then I want to do this and then I want to do this. It's been more the case of my considering where can I do something that challenges me enough that I'll work hard? Because right? we all know things that are a little too easy you don't Frankie don't work as hard um, where I can bring about change and make a difference And I don't have any plans at this point for anything We haven't had an election yet uh, We'll see what happens. We'll see if anybody calls. We'll see what I think.
0: And finally Gail, let me ask you about, what you see your legacy or your work. I mean, you talked about this a little bit just a second ago, but what are you trying to do on planet earth?
1: I think I'm trying to make it more fair. You know, again, I was talking about when I first became a journalist and I, you know, I had a good education. I knew a lot. I think what opened my eyes was how unfair the world is and the big event for me was the ethiopian famine in 1984 and 85 which was i was in a port of ethiopia where there was also a war and and 1500 2000 people were dying every day dead bodies and devastation and then bombings every day and then you look at the other side of the planet in london or the united states and say how can these two realities be existing on the same planet that's just not right so what can i do to try to if the extremes are here to here just even narrow them a bit number one and then i think the second thing was you know even in the the midst of extraordinary hardship in countries i've been in the dignity and generosity afforded me. The generosity afforded by people who have very little. And I think it's fighting for their dignity. Poor people are not passive people waiting for handouts. There are equals who did not grow up like me and they deserve opportunity and they deserve their dignity so if i can make the world a little bit more fair and fight for the dignity of people who are not getting the dignity they deserve that'll keep me going
0: that's great that's fantastic gail smith president and ceo of the one campaign thank you so much for your time
1: thank you so much it's been a pleasure you take care
0: you've been watching influencers i'm andy serwer we'll see you next time Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Surwork.